What is up, fellow thermonuclear AFers? I am Dan Valley coming at you with our second mailbag of the week. It's part two of the mailbag. Had a bunch of great questions from Discord. That's why you should join our Discord because you get priority um, when it comes to having your mailbag questions answered. I tend to I a- answer every single one, I think. If I ever forget, someone on Discord should uh, call me out on that so I can make sure to answer it on the next one post haste very quickly before we dive in here uh please remember to hit subscribe on youtube like buttons comment as well help the algorithm love us back also subscribe to us on apple and spotify wherever you get your podcast both we want to cross subscribe here help the community continue to grow there um follow us on all the socials the links to that are in the podcast description join our discord that is in the podcast and youtube description as well shout us out on twitter i appreciate those uh retweet our promos helps you know make me feel better when i throw out a promo tweet and it only gets two retweets from the accounts that i control and then one like uh and yeah word of mouth like i said recommend us if you know people who like shitty basketball takes let's dive into part two of this mailbag though uh jt alexander also asked reports coming out regarding alvin's adam silver wanting teams to discourage wanting to discourage teams from tanking do you have any thoughts around how they could successfully do this after utah gets wemby of course uh, I, there was talk about relegation, which was mentioned in our discord. It's just not feasible with the way that the NBA is set up right now. I think that the only other thing you could try, and there will be unintended consequences of anything you do is do you limit the years in which a team can land inside the top five consecutively? And you're still then though, ensuring there'll be one year tanks. And then you also might have the unintended consequences of, well, they're just random kind of good teams that might tank for that one year because they know that there's a better shot since these, maybe these, you know, two other teams have sucked the past two years and they still suck, but because they've already had top five picks, you already know they're not going to get a top five pick, but that's the only thing that I could really see there. And I, I don't, other people have ideas. I, I, there's going to be unintended consequences of everything is what I've learned because even we thought the, the flattened lottery odds would help. And I do think it's alleviated tanking a little bit, but it's, it, it hasn't cured it. Nothing's going to be a panacea for it. Maybe the midseason tournament helps, but I just don't. I still don't even that one. I'm going to be there's so much parity in the league that maybe it gets interesting, but I don't really understand what value from a stakes perspective that brings. So, yeah, I don't I don't really know how they could successfully deter teams from tanking anymore. Uh, and the other thing is just like right now, the NBA doesn't have a tanking problem at the at the moment. Um, in this season and we're going to probably see other teams sort of sell themselves into it but the, like the spurs are winning and the jazz are winning so like some of these flagrant tankers and then there's the pacers who it's like well they're not tanking because miles turner was injured came back and then immediately played it might i'm assuming it gets worse as we lead into the deeper into the season but like, it doesn't seem like a huge issue to me right now i th- i just think the best bet would be you can have one top five pick um, you can't have it like more than once every three years or something. I don't, I don't even, maybe that's even too, too harsh um, because then you're, you're really saying that you're not giving teams a rebuilding window. And sometimes it just takes a little while to rebuild what you are discouraging there. If you do um, make that decision, let's say you might also just be damaging the trade market because well, if the jazz are like what they're doing right now, they have control of so many other teams as drafts, but those are so far out. You're counting on having those in your back pocket while you capitalize on your own draft picks. But if you can only capitalize on really one of them, like in the top five or whatever it ends up being, uh, why would you then want to go through this methodical rebuild? You might be more inclined to double down on the core you already have and mortgage your own future. So yeah, that would be my only thoughts there. Carrigan, how should the jazz celebrate their first ever 80, 
81-1 season since they already lost. This question was asked before then. A parade doesn't seem like enough. Uh, it is not. They should immediately go out and trade for stars is how they celebrate. Maybe Donovan Mitchell and Rigo Bear will become available at that point. But, man, the Jazz have been fun. Uh, I've only watched one full game of theirs and then gone back, and I was w- watching possessions of of players and just, like, how their offense was looking. <laughs> The Jazz are really fun, and I, Larry Marketing just looks like a completely different player from where he was, not even just last season in Cleveland, where he was in a more complimentary role in offense anyway, but, like, in Chicago. It's just unrecognizable um, from the player that was there in his final season. Darkwing Duck is having to change the defensive schemes with Rudy in versus Rudy out going to confuse the Timberwolves to mediocrity. Uh, I, yes, is, I don't, I don't know permanently, but when you look, they've had such a confusing season. And Darkwing Duck, I just want you to know that I didn't have the Timberwolves on my must-watch to start the year because of the teams they were playing. When you look at San Antonio twice, OKC twice, and Utah, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to learn about this these teams. I was w- going to watch snippets of their games. I went back and I watched um, post, none, no live games, but like almost three hours worth of Timberwolves games to try and understand what's happening defensively. I don't understand what's happening defensively. The things I observed, there is, I do think there's probably some bad luck there. Like teams are just killing them for mid range. They're at 45.5%. They've hit some just like pretty tough floaters over a Rudy Gobert. They've gotten some bad bounces uh, as well when you look at the defensive rebounding, but they've also been really bad at defensive rebounding. They're 24th right now. That's an issue. And when you look at, so a lot of the players on their team or some of their lineups have done a really good job of getting back off of misses or live ball turnovers. The starting lineup is not. They have been an absolute disaster at getting back in transition. Um, 22.1% of all their opponent possessions against the starting five is in transition. And 37.1%, like 37.1% of their opponent possessions end in transition after a missed shot by the Wolves. That is really bad. Um, they're not getting back when they commit turnovers. And that's an issue as well. Like there is so like, they are just behind the play so much and they're around the bottom five, bottom six and turnover rate at the moment. Uh, these three teams have scored an average of 1.57 points per possession after the wolves commit a turnover. And the starting lineup, by the way, has turned the ball over on nearly 20% of their possessions. When you look at the actual defense, like being 13th overall in points per possession is Fine, but again, the, that level of competition, Utah has been on fire, but these teams are not supposed to be good. And even if you think Utah is supposed to have this like wildly elite offense, the Spurs and OKC are not slash they do not. like. So that is something to consider there. And yeah, I mean, San Antonio is 12th in offense this year, but like, how much of that has to do with the fact that they, they played the Wolves? They are giving up a lot of threes in Minnesota, and op- opponents are hitting them. I think what I've noticed and the the Timberwolves broadcast has pointed this out a couple of times too. They are toggling with their defensive coverages. Like even with Gobert, like you're in kind of a zone at points, but then they're confusing it because they're actually just switching a bunch. Um, Some of the big, the bigger things that I've noticed from an individual perspective, uh, Jane McDaniels had some really weird just moments away from the ball. Carl Anthony Towns needs to do a better job of not getting sealed off when he's the only big on the court or letting guys get behind him in semi-transition. Not even transition, transition, semi-transition in general. Uh, there's been weird ball watching when they're in their zone. I think Nas Reed has been guilty of that a ton at points. Anthony Edwards looks flat out lost at times. Just a bunch of a bunch of weird stuff. And 
I do think some of that could be, okay, well, we're trying to, we're going back to the more aggressive scheme when Gobert's off the court. You could see it not fully from last year, but like you can see what the Wolves are trying to do. They're forcing turnovers on 16.7% of plays in which Gobert isn't on the court versus 10.8% of plays when he's on the court. My recommendation there would be like, don't do that anymore. Like stick with your baseline defense. I know having additional packages and schemes is important. Like it's all about versatility and adaptability, whatever you want to call it, however you want to frame it. That being said, like when you're still so new to each other and you're trying to teach the wolves something new compared to last year, I think you really need to hammer in the more conservative approach. Um, even when Gobert's off the court. Now that does leave you susceptible because Carl Anthony towns is not built to play that way. But like this way also kind of sort of isn't working all that well. And you can just tell at this point, I would just wonder if more consistency might streamline the development. And then maybe you can get to a point once Jane McDaniels and Anthony Edwards are more comfortable with this, this stuff. I don't know that you're ever going to count on maybe Carl Anthony towns necessarily, but like once you're like your most important players are comfortable in the new system that you're trying to go through. And a lot of the times it's just, I will say they are giving up a lot of threes and a lot of them are wide open threes. Um, they 31, 20, excuse me, 27.5% of their opponent threes have gone completely uncontested opponent when they're six or more feet away. Uh, that's the highest mark in the league. And then their overall opponent uh, shots, 30, 31.5% of them are going completely uncontested. So including two pointers, that is the, by far and away, the highest mark in the league. It just feels like they're getting lost. I mentioned the weird off ball moments for Jane McDaniels in the half court before when they're getting back in transition. I don't know that there's like this hold on where you're supposed, we could say assignments, but like, are you, you're not necessarily trying to cross match it. Do you know where you're supposed to be in that zone? Or I think the bigger thing, even like I said, is just letting um, teams get behind them. And even Rudy Gobert has been guilty of this um, at points. And I will, it's harder for him because of where I'm not making an excuse for those situations. It's going to be harder for him because he's so near the basket. A lot of the time um, on offense that to then have to get like, yes, if, if there's going to be a live ball, miss shot, a long rebound. Uh, although statistically we know that, you know, taking threes does not lead to necessarily longer rebounds and more transition, whatever. But if there is a long rebound that allows for a transition, if there is a turnover um, from, you know, above the free throw line and you're below the free throw line, it's just going to be harder for him to get back. Um, those are things I, I won't even, I just, I don't know that it's an effort thing. I think it's just a grasp of what's happening. We should ask a coach. I'm sure Chris Finch has been asked about this a ton. I'm sure someone smarter than me is going to write about more of this or podcast about more of this soon. I'm just wondering if it would benefit them to be more consistent in what they're trying to run. Even though I recognize that because the lineups they do field are so dissimilar when it's Gobert and Towns versus Towns and no Gobert, let's say as the one that it can get, or just no go bear that it, it can get messy trying to stick with that. Uh, but you need to, because the, a lot of the miscues have happened with go bear on the floor and he's still been a defensive just life force for them. Um, but it's clear that these guys are still trying to learn, I guess, where to be or how to know when to, I guess, necessarily like, I don't know. Like, do they forget which coverage they're supposed to be running there? There's just been, even for a team that has been, like relatively good in the half court defensively. I think they're, I mentioned they're seventh in half court defensive efficiency. Um, they've just still had just a lot of gaffes there from what I've watched. And so I don't think this is going to be a permanent issue for them. I do believe that the learning curve on defense 
might last longer than we expected. But does it fucking matter when Jalen Noel is going to win MVP? That's really the that's the actual question here. We're re- I think we're going to all have to watch them more closely when they're playing quote unquote better teams. I know the Jazz are future NBA champions, but like you know when you're going to go up against like you haven't been up against a Western Conference superpower yet, and so in the coming weeks, that's something that we're really going to need to once their schedule gets a little bit tougher. Um, that's something that we're really going to need to pay attention to. Killhoss asked if the Magic somehow got the number one pick, what the hell do they do with their roster? And do we ever see Women Yama, Bol Bol, and Bamba on the court together? Pretty sure they break the record for tallest lineup ever. Uh, I wonder if that would be the tallest lineup. I w- it would have to be. They, I think the Magic would just lean into the weird that we've seen Franz Wagner play some actual point guard this season. It's not been pretty. The Magic have an offensive rating of 87.9 when he's at point guard. But like they have rolled out the. It's sort of the the pet base of it is, oh, it's going to be Bamba, um, Franz Wagner, Caleb Houston, and then they're sort of mixing in, oh, is Bobo, Chumo KK, and Paolo Bancaro, Wendell Carter Jr., like two of those guys will be in there. That's what we see, though, is if you're if we're trying to build like the best player lineup, it's Franz Wagner. I would put Paolo Bancaro in there right away because now you actually have all these creators with Wembenyama. So Wagner, he's actually scored well, the pick and roll this year. And he was, last I checked, at like 56% shooting on his drives. Less self-creation than I would say Paolo Bancaro for sure. Who knows right off the bat with Weminyama. But you have those three guys. And then I'd probably flesh it out with Wendell Carter Jr. And then just Bobo. Like that's, I don't even mean to disrespect to Bamba. But like Bobo, like all of those guys can do stuff on the ball where Mo Bamba really can't. And so it's, you run out Bobo with Bancaro, with Franz Wagner, with Weminyama and then Wendell Carter Jr. That's what you roll out. I know you want to go for size there, and so do you exchange Carter for Bamba in that situation? Look, that's fine. If you like, they they would fucking try it. Look, they they're basically trying it now. Like we've seen four of these guys that we're talking about have already played together. So we've seen Bamba, Bancaro, Bobo, and have we ever seen four though of the bigs? Yeah, it was. We've seen Wagner, Caleb Houston, Bobo, Wendell Carter Jr., and Bamba. I remember seeing those five together. And so you just look, you take Caleb Houston out of there and then you're going to throw in uh Palo ben- you take Houston and then Wendell Carter Jr. out of there and you throw in Wembenyama and Palo Bancaro. That's not a stretch just because yeah, I think objectively Bomber or, or Bobo is going to be your worst player so why not pull them? But those are the lineups that you would be running. So if they do get Wembenyama, uh we're absolutely seeing that unless they trade one or both of Bobo and and Bamba. I would be excited to to see that. Unbiased Pistons fan asks, is there any world in which Wemby doesn't go number one? Like, aside from death and retirement, if Scoot, it's, if Scoot averaged 50, 10, and 10, Wemby would still go number one. Would he still go one with a Paul George-level injury? Knock on wood that that doesn't happen. I'm really interested in how transcendent of a prospect he is compared to Scoot. Here's my, having watched bits and pieces of two games of each of these players, here's my unassailable take on this. That if Scoot Henderson was like six inches taller, uh, let's say five, like six, seven, he would be considered the better prospect. I think a big part of it is there were questions about his jumper, but he seems like he's really worked on that. The step back has looked very pretty, being able to dribble into to pull-ups. He's six two. I really, I honest to God think that that's what it is. And then you would look at him if he was six five, six six, six seven, be like, oh, that's that's playmaking wing territory. And then Wemby's just as like nine foot seven rail thin superstructure. How is he going to hold up? Those questions I think would be propped up even more. 
And so barring an injury, I don't see how Wemby doesn't go number one. And it's just, I think Scoot's really good. I would argue there's more of the the meld of speed and fluidity to his on-ball game where it's very fluid when Wembenyama has the ball, but it's happening at a slower processing rate. And I think part of that is not even necessarily an understanding of the game, but like he just has so much length that has to go with him. It inherently takes longer. And so I don't know if there's anything Scoot could do to usurp him now, but if he was taller, let's say, I'll say four inches taller. If he, if he was six, five, six, six, he would probably be, I think he might be, maybe he wouldn't be. That's really unfair to say because women, Yama just, but I do think it would be more of a discussion. I think a lot of it does have to do with the fact that he's six, two. I mean, I think you're going to, he would have to be just like this more disruptive defender as well. And so like, is he part of the appeal with women? Yama is like, Oh, he's party crashing plays from all the way behind them. He's in the passing lane without actually being in the passing lane. Somehow and all oh, that dude's a primary rim protector, but he's getting back in transition and Oh, he knows how to use his length when he's on smaller players. So, He's definitely a transcendent prospect. I do think Scoot was already viewed incredibly highly, it seems. I think that if he was 6'5", let's just 6'5", 6'6", I won't even go to 6'7", that maybe this is a different conversation. Dobbs 94 asks, fuck, Mary kill, Ja, Luca, and Trey. I'm going to say fuck, Mary cut from the team because kill is so morbid and I don't wish death upon any of these guys. So fuck, Mary cut with a K from the team, Ja, Luca, and Trey. Uh, you marry Luca because of the stability there. He's the closest thing we have to just a one dude contender right now. And then you fuck Ja. Like this, every single possession from this guy is an unforgettable experience. So he's just going to rock your world for a, a night or whatever. And you're never going to forget it. It's probably going to be the best night of your life. That's easy. And then Trey Young just becomes collateral damage there. It's, it's unfortunate, but I, I think that's what you go with. When you're looking at Juster, like comparing it to basketball games, that's what I just like sort of an, um, an analogizing that I would stick with it. It's jaws, like the basketball player that you fuck because there's substance, but there's just so much flash as well. Luca gives you that air of stability. Trey is more of a wild card than both. I would argue, even though you trust maybe his off the dribble shot making more than jaws away from the rim. Uh, he's just smaller, going to be easier to move around on, on defense. And look, he has killed it at moments in the playoffs. So maybe I'm wrong there. The jaw versus Trey debate is extremely fascinating. Usher, with CP3 reaching the 11K milestone in assists, I wanted to know which under-25 player do you think will most likely reach that milestone, or if you think no one currently will. It feels much more unlikely with traditional guards, in quotes, becoming a thing of the past, and many point guards are focused much more on scoring. Love the show, as always. Thank you, Usher. I'm pretty sure this is also Chris Curtis, just because of how you signed off. And I know for a fact Chris Curtis says he asked questions in multiple mediums. So there was a riveting discussion about this in discord i'm just like chris paul's in year 18 and is averaging over nine assists for his career i believe just trying to imagine someone doing that trey young and luca were the ones that are most talked about excuse me and they're no brainers does that ever pull back for either of them if you know trey young being off the ball more in atlanta this season does that escalate down the line in the best version of the hawks uh, looking at other players I don't know that Kate or Garland could ever get there, especially looking at the makeup of their rosters now, because like you just almost can't afford maybe your first two years. Cause CP three was only at like under nine assists for both those years. But uh, like you just, there's no recovering. If you have a few years where you're playing alongside someone else who has a majority of the, the playmaking duties, um, I Halliburton, you know, he kind of like, okay, there's that pullback from the first two seasons, but like he's there now and so if he just keeps this up and he's the dude that everyone thinks he is and he stays healthy a sneaky one might be Lamelo. 
Uh, this season could technically hurt him depending on how much time he misses. But that would just be, if you put him on a better team, he feels like the guy who could have some really nom- like astronomical seasons with assists where it's like 12, 12, like on, on a few seasons that perhaps if he stays healthy, that could get him there. I don't see anyone else. If any, if anyone else disagrees, uh, feel free to get at me. Romeo 8180. How do you justify putting RJ Barrett ahead of Wendell Carter Jr. on your top 25 under 25 list? Please explain, sir. I'm not sure Barrett will ever be able to shoot. He couldn't in high school, couldn't in college and still can't in the NBA. What good is rim pressure if the ball doesn't go in? While Carter's not an amazing long-range shooter, he at least scores efficiently at the rim and makes his free throws. Plus, shooting is a bit less critical at his position. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure he has a good argument for being a better player on both ends of the court, especially when you start digging into the numbers. Uh, he, Romeo also, or Rome, yeah, Romeo said not to waste time on this with the mailbag. We're going to waste time on this. Look, I was pretty upfront that 25 was a tough decision. I considered MPJ. I considered Wendell Carter Jr. I considered Keldon Johnson. I considered Anthony Simons. I'm not saying I'm right. When I look at RJ, I do think that, oh, he can't shoot is overstated the past two years. And yes, he's off to a slow start this year. I think he's at like 27% on catch and shoot threes, but he's been able to hit catch and shoot threes. Uh, at between 38 and 40% clips over the past two years on real volume, higher volume than Wendell Carter Jr. has seen. I think that matters. The rim pressure to me absolutely matters. I just looked, you know, I just described how when I'm talking about younger players trying to graduate into different types of roles, I'm going to throw efficiency out the window a little bit. And when you look at RJ Barrett this year, uh, look, the moments on offense, they have not been even kind of sort of pretty uh, for, for most of this year. But that rim pressure is still there. 40% of his shots are coming at the rim. And his shooting until the game against the Hornets, I think he was hovering around 60% at the basket, which would be a career high. And so that's scaling upward. I don't think the Knicks have really given him legitimate spacing even yet. There's definitely better versions this season. Having Isaiah Hartenstein on the court helps a ton. This version of Julius Randle helps a ton. Jalen Brunson, of course. So to me, there's a plug and play aspect to RJ Barrett's offense because I trust him to knock down spot up jumpers in the aggregate. If this, if he goes through an entire season like this in year four, yeah, when it was year one, it was whatever years two and three, he was more consistent with it. Then I'll be concerned. I think there's a better finisher here. I think we're going to see it by the end of this season too. Uh, and rim pressure is still going to help you draw more fouls. Even if you're not finishing last year, his shooting foul percentage was the highest of his career. Uh, that is not going to be a coincidence this year already. He's on pace to have like the highest N one percentage of his career too. So that stuff matters. His shooting per uh, his shooting foul percentage though, that is down. But at the same time, look at his free throw free throws. He's I think shooting 83 plus percent on free throws this year. If I'm not mistaken, he's over 80%. I believe that's an improvement. Not always a good indicator of shooting. I'm not saying he's going to hit step backs or ever really have the great pull up mid range game. But just as shooting isn't critical to Wendell Carter Jr.'s position, I don't think R.J. Barrett needs that pull-up game. Look at Jimmy Butler. I'm not saying they're the same players because they're not. The other thing is, I think he's an understated passer. Wendell Carter Jr. is still probably better there. Defensively, R.J. has taken on really tough assignments the past three years. Well, two, two plus, like two previous seasons plus this one. And I don't think he receives enough credit for how well he's done with it. I trust him against, yeah, there was the game against the Grizzlies. Yeah, he got burned a lot by John Morant and was like dying, like not necessarily on screens, but like sort of like floating around them. Uh, and it felt like it was infecting his offense, but like he can actually handle those types of assignments and not you know, be absolutely slaughtered. Like he is the guy that you can at least turn to and no, maybe not feel great about it. But the fact that he is doing that 
it makes me think about, well, the best version of himself probably doesn't include doing that. So how much of a more of an impactful defender can he still be? And I still think he's been pretty damn good. What I would say is I would have to go back and look at the, I should have, um, but this was one of the last questions I was adding. So I didn't study for it too much because I thought that I did enough on the under 25 who knew if you look at it, I just feel like he's had to guard a higher caliber of player over the course of his career. And I value the returns I've seen from there. I value the more long standing sample size of him knocking down set three pointers. I was taking a gamble on his rim pressure, uh, but Wendell Carter jr. I was also looking at his role this year. feels a little bit more complimentary still, you know, slow start picked it up since he's really good. I said he could be an all-star this season and maybe had he gotten off to a faster start, I wouldn't have let myself get colored by this. It was close. I don't think, I think, Romeo, if you're just going to say, um, and I know what your name is, so I don't know I'm calling you Romeo, but anyway, if I think if you say that Wendell Carter Jr. is better than R.J. Barrett right now, that's fine. I don't think it's just like a given. Uh, and maybe it is, and maybe I'm wrong, but that's how I would justify it, is I trust his set shooting more already, even, again, in the larger sample size that we've seen. And Wendell Carter Jr., a problem in Chicago. I mean, we just saw what happened with Larry Markin. He was a victim of that too. Didn't really get the chance to like bust out in this consistent fashion until last year. So we are dealing with a little bit more of an unknown with him. He's always shown the flashes of defense and then some of the well-rounded offensive skill set. Someone like a big being able to just get that north-south fuel without a running head start. Like you don't see that a ton. Um, again, the the skeleton, as I said a lot in that uh, article or audio podcast, whatever, of that game is there. Um, fringe stardom even, but um, I would have to see a larger sample of it before I'm ready to definitively say that he's better than RJ and RJ would have to make zero improvements. So that that's just where I land on that. I'm not saying what I believed was gospel though. Um, Lone beep up in honor of the late Tony Brown, RIP to Tony Brown. Does Dan have any memorable slash favorite referees he enjoys calling games or any referee player interactions he found memorable or funny. For me, I always enjoyed Dan Crawford. He's a Chicago native native and I think still lives there. Uh, I enjoyed another Crawford. Joey Crawford was just funny way over the top and pissed off Tim Duncan. Like how do you piss off Tim Duncan? So, so visibly where it's, yeah, he had the facial expressions at point, but like he was just so mad. I, I so I have to give, I don't know if it's credit, but that was fun. Uh, Ken Maurer always like, looked like he's there to whack someone. I felt like I was watching Goodfellas on Broadway or something. Uh, Bill Kennedy has a, I'm jacked and I know it swagger about him. I very much appreciate that. And then Lauren Holcamp, uh, I'd kill for her running stride. And she has this stare into your soul bag of facial expressions that I think are just sometimes the whistles in her mouth too. So it just adds like a, um, like just a layer of, um, I I don't even know what the word is. Just like, hysteria to it like it's just like oh that that just happened it just gives it a different look when the when she has the whistle in her mouth too and she's sort of just like glaring or or smiling with her eyes um so yeah those are the four for me um i've i've never been someone who gets too into referees like i can't bring myself to get into uh, what team's records are when when this ref is on the court or the conspiracy theories um that are out there with teams and their referees uh, but like, you know, you, you know, certain referees or like Joey Crawford was always one where it was just like going to be so flamboyant with his calls. Bill Kennedy is going to like saddle up um, into the camera, make sort of a show of it kind of like that. Oh, they're, they're here to see me type deal. Like Stephen A. Smith walking into an, an NBA arena. Uh, so like, I, I can appreciate that. I don't really get mad at refs. I think that's probably the benefit of cover, covering the league at large, even though I am a deadingly disenchanted Knicks fan. 
but yeah, that's RIP to Tony Brown. Um, but we all watch basketball to watch the refs. And so like that, that's why you ask and answer this question. Thank you all for asking these questions. This was long enough that I actually might split it into the two that I normally would. I guess you won't know until I publish it. Uh, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us if you're on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, Google, whatever. Uh, retweet our promos if you're on Twitter. Shout us out, um, and I will retweet it or engage with it once I see it. I don't, you know, Hardwood Knox account itself. I'm not always on that, but my personal one I'll certainly see. Uh, recommend us, though. Word of mouth helps us out a ton. And subscribe on YouTube if you've made it all the way this far and you're not subscribed. You haven't hit that like button and commented. I don't know. Like, come on. Take the extra five seconds to do all that. And until next time, I leave you a shout out to the one, the only, the indelible, the forever, the real best player under 25 in the NBA, who I did know was hurt, Kill Hoss. How would I not know that he wasn't hurt? That was the implication when I said that there's not enough Frankie Lakeen in the Mavs rotation. He is their most valuable player. His name is Frank Nielakina.